On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. Thousands of television and film writers are on the picket lines as the first Writers Guild of America strike in 15 years is underway. While the 2007 to 2008 strike lasted 100 days, many industry analysts believe this one could last even longer. There are many more production companies involved in the negotiating process, and their demands vary. The impact of the strike is already being felt. Programs like Saturday Night Live and The Late Show with Stephen Colbert went dark after May 1st. Tonight at midnight Pacific time, the old contract ends. And if a deal has not been reached, the union could go on strike tomorrow, which means that writers might have to do something totally against their nature. Go outside. (laughs) Other shows like Stranger Things and Abbott Elementary are no longer making progress on upcoming seasons. President Biden also spoke about the issue during a screening of the Disney Plus TV series American Born Chinese at the White House. We need the writers and all the workers and everyone involved to tell the stories of our nation and the stories of all of us. So what are the Hollywood writers' demands and how will the strike affect the future of film and television? We get into all that and more after this quick break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to get into. Stay with us. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get into it. Joining us from Los Angeles is John Terry Gadsden. She's a comedy writer in the WGA. That's the Writers Guild of America West. She's worked on shows like Everybody Still Hates Chris and a Black Lady Sketch Show. She's also a strike master who's been out on the picket lines every day. John Terry, thanks for joining us. Hello. Thanks for having me. And with us from New York is Chris Kyle. He's a screenwriter and the secretary treasurer for the WGA East. He's behind films like K-19, The Widowmaker, and Alexander. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, We reached out to the Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Producers, or AMPTP. That's the trade group that represents the networks and streaming platforms. We invited them to join the conversation today. They declined, instead offering a written statement, which we will share throughout the hour. Now, John Terry, why did you and the over 11,000 members of the WGA choose to close your laptops, step off the job, and take to the picket lines now? Um, We didn't get a good deal before our contract went up. We just want a deal from the studios that allows us, the writers, to share in the success of the content we create. We want uh, to share in the profit that they make from our work and make writing us a sustainable career. Chris, this strike was years in the making, with writers choosing to hold off during the 2020 pandemic. What are the primary concerns the WGA has with compensation that's really brought this to a head? Well, we feel like the middle class of writers, especially in television, has been hollowed out over the streaming revolution. Uh, They've used the opportunity that the new technology has created to cut pay and cut working conditions in ways that are hurting writers. So our main issues are drastically reduced compensation, demands for free work, that means asking us to do draft after draft without paying for them, and the looming threat of artificial intelligence. When you talk about the middle class of writers, what sort of money are they making? And and how does that compare to people who are maybe on the upper end or lower end of the scale? There are definitely a handful of writers in our guild who do extremely well. I'm sure some listeners have heard of people like Shonda Rhimes or Ryan Murphy, who are showrunners who make a great deal of money, and God bless them for their success. But most uh, television and screenwriters struggle to maintain a middle-class lifestyle in two of the most expensive cities in America. Although from week to week, we might make what sounds like a good salary. We have very little job security and often go through long periods of unemployment. I myself am going through that right now. The last time I had a paying gig was about a year ago. So I've been living off my savings and residuals for almost a year now. And that's a very common experience in our guild. I want to get to residuals in a second. But first, how does compensation differ in film screenwriting compared to writing for television, Chris? In films, we are usually paid by the draft, so we get paid about half of our compensation when we start writing a script and then half when we turn in the draft. In television, uh, there is a payment for writing a particular script for a show, but television writers are usually on staff and often are writer-producers with multiple duties besides writing, and they are paid a weekly fee or sometimes a per-episode fee in addition to the fees they get for writing a particular script. Now, John Terry, Chris talked about residuals, and and those are payments that writers receive when their shows are repackaged, resold, or re-aired. You've worked on nationally syndicated television programs like the Kelly Clarkson uh, show and streaming programs like HBO's A Black Lady Sketch Show. How do residuals differ between the two? Um, Well, you get significantly less on a streamer. Um, For instance, the Kelly Clarkson show, uh, being syndicated, it, it'll air in foreign markets, it'll air um, on, on basic cable as well as like network TV, and we get a payment for all of those. Um, also, when a show re-airs on network TV, um, you get a, a, a large percentage of your uh, script fee again, right? And so on streamers, when it's just repeating over and over, and we're not getting the numbers of how many times it's airing, there's nothing to really, there's not like a percentage 
of that that they're basing the money we get on. It's all no matter how successful the show is, you're getting the same amount and it's much less than you get on network TV. How much clarity do you have, John Terry, on how many times a stream show is airing? Uh, almost none. Um, like Net- Netflix famously doesn't release their numbers, for instance. Is that part of your demands then? Uh, increased clarity, increased transparency around how much these programs are being viewed? Um, I think that just that falls into like us being able to share in the profits, us being able to take uh, to have residuals, having some clear um, understanding or uh, of what they're basing our residuals on in the streaming on a streaming platform. How much of an effect did residuals have on your finances during the pandemic, John Terry? Oh, that was huge. Um, when the when the pandemic happened, um, my weekly pay stopped. I was a, write, a writer on the Kelly Clarkson show at the time, um, and I'd been getting paid weekly. So, of course, that went away. Um, but I was able, I was getting residuals from the time that I did work, um, and that carried me over throughout the pandemic when I wasn't able to work. We got this message from a member of our text club who writes, I'm in my 80s. I look forward every day to Stephen Colbert's monologue. It helps me keep it helps keep me sane in this crazy world. I feel depressed when he's merely on vacation, so I don't know how I'll survive with an extended strike. There are many there are many more old farts like me. Shame on the studios for not paying the writers for their contribution to the country's mental health. John Terry, Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav joined CNBC's Squawk Box on Friday morning. Journalist Andrew Ross Sorkin asked how the writer's strike could impact the company and whether it could improve its profitability, at least temporarily. We're a pure storytelling company, and we've been fighting to get the greatest creatives to come work at Warner Brothers. We have all the assets. We've got this incredible library of IP. Um, we have a diversified portfolio. In order to create great storytelling. We need great writers. And we need the whole industry to work together. And everybody deserves to be paid fairly. So our our number one focus is, let's try and get this resolved. Let's do it in a way that that the writers feel that they're valued, which they are, and they're compensated fairly. And then off we go. Let's tell great stories together. Zeslav has been under public scrutiny for his executive pay. His 2021 compensation was nearly $250 million. You've worked on shows for HBO that's under the Warner Brothers Discovery umbrella. How do you respond to Zeslav's comments? I mean, I think the biggest thing when you talk about um, his compensation being $250 million a year and when what we're asking for, for all of our demands to be met, all of uh, the writers' demands to be met, it would be less than 2% of the profits they make off of our work, which is $426 million per year. That's like uh, two David Zaslav (laughs) salaries could meet all of our demands. Um, And yeah. Well, the AMPTP provided a written statement in response to concerns about compensation. It says, quote, the first year general wage increase is the highest on the table in more than 25 years. And the companies involved offered to create a new category of rates, establishing a higher floor for mid-level writers' compensation. End quote. Chris, to your mind, why don't the compensation proposals go far enough? Well, uh, let me just say I was in the negotiating room with them um, for four weeks out of the last six 
And their uh, offers don't come close to meeting the needs that we have. I mean, yes, it's maybe true that they had the highest percentage increase, but we've had the highest inflation in many years over the last few years, as people know. And their offer didn't come close to meeting the inflationary costs. The average uh, television writer is now making 24% less than they did 10 years ago if you adjust for inflation. So these are very wide gaps between what they're offering and what we need to have. We also need to have some security for television writers to be involved in the process, not just in the writing phase, but also in the production and post-production phase. That's the long tradition of television, the way it's been made for over 50 years. And that's been very, very profitable for the companies. Many shows that were created decades ago, like Friends, are still extremely valuable to those companies. And yet they don't recognize how valuable it is to have writers on the set and in the editing room all the way through the process. So we're fighting for more than just a bump in our wages. We're fighting for the way they've broken the way television is made. Let's go back to our inbox. Another member of our text club shared this. Physical destruction, fight scenes, and car chases are so boring, and the outcomes are always predictable. Without good writing, there's no good storytelling, and there would be no Hollywood without it. Movies and TV are the literature of today, and it insults me that the studios think I'll consume their offerings without paying for good writing. Coming up, we learn about the mini brooms and how television scripting is changing. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Let's get back to the discussion by adding a new voice. Jonathan Handel is an entertainment attorney in Los Angeles. He's also a contributing writer covering the strike for Puck News. He was formerly a contributing editor for The Hollywood Reporter. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Jen, thanks for having me. Thanks very much. Let's go to our voicemail box. Daniel in San Francisco left this message. I happened to work in the film and TV industry when we had the last writer's strike, which got writers back on track and getting paid well and union dues and everything they should be given. I picked up some jobs and I think you absolutely should go on strike. Like this is bull crap. You need to be well remunerated for your work. Now, Jonathan, your book, Hollywood on Strike, an industry at war in the internet age, detailed the 2007 and 2008 writer's strike. That strike lasted 100 days, and it led to the dramatic rise in unscripted television or reality TV. What are the, the, some of the fundamental similarities and differences between that strike 15 years ago and the strike that's happening now? Well, there, there are uh, significant differences and um, uh, and also similarities. The uh, 
the similarity is that both uh, in both cases the issues at at play were viewed as existential by the writers and uh, uh, and strike worthy and and your point about reality TV is exactly right. In fact, the initial rise of reality shows like um, like cops, for example, uh, came with the 1988 writers' strike, and then the 0708 strike uh, turbocharged reality, in, including uh, bringing a celebrity apprentice uh, with, with political ramifications, as that everyone knows, and Donald Trump. Um, the differences are this: the the strike 15 years ago was about jurisdiction and residuals over the uh, the internet itself, uh, digital platforms. Uh, that was achieved and accomplished by the uh, the DGA and the Writers Guild uh, and the other unions. Uh, but uh, things evolved in a way that wasn't anticipated. Streaming, uh, you know, to television and you know the rise of Netflix as a streaming provider uh, were things that happened in, in the sort of 2012, 2000 or, or so time frame. And uh, starting in 14, uh, with the negotiations then, there were residuals formulas and terms and conditions dealing with, with this. But in, in 2017, writers started to say, um, you know, this is a very hard industry for us to work in. We're, we're, we're not getting paid what we need. It's, it's hard to survive in it. And um, people asked, well, how can that be? Because this is peak TV. There's an enormous growth in the number of scripted series. But I asked a question that no one had asked, which was, yes, that's true, but we know that the seasons are getting shorter. How many episodes in aggregate across all scripted shows are produced in this industry in a year? And what I found was in a four-year period where the number of series had gone up by 50%, uh, meaning that audiences and television critics were obviously overworked, keeping up with it all, the number of writers working in TV had gone up by 20%, but the number of episodes, the work for them to actually work on had actually briefly dipped and was only up by 7%. That's because writers are hired by the series, but paid essentially by the work that they do. So there's a fundamental disconnect in the labor market for uh, for writers. And it's, you know, because these series are less, the network series is 22 episodes. The average now is 10 episodes per season. And it's very, it creates a very great difficulty that we would have seen come to roost in 2020 were it not for the pandemic. This well, strike is, 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 is work left over from then. The Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Producers provided a written statement. Here's a, a portion about residuals. Quote, under the current formula for a one-hour series produced by Netflix or Amazon, a writer receives $72,000 for one episode over three years and 99000 over five years. The most recent offer improves on these amounts. And just... To, to break it down sort of on a weekly basis. So for that one episode over three years, that's $461 a week. Um, for the 99000 over five years, that's about $380 a week, I think, if I did the, did the math correctly. But I think people listening, Jonathan, have a hard time understanding how much money writers are actually making is how much of a living they're making on a yearly basis. How much can they really pull together if they're working multiple shows or if they're only working one show? Can you, can you give us some clarity around that? Well, I can, I can try, but it's difficult because um, uh, the writer's guild has released uh, figures that are, that honestly are somewhat cherry picked um, and we don't really know why, uh, but they've released figures on, you know, how many people are now working at minimum that used to be making over minimum and, 
you know, and uh, the rate for a script or for a week is, you know, not kept up with inflation and so forth. But what they haven't released is what does the typical writer, the median uh, writer, make in a year? Uh, and how does that compare to 5, 10, and 20 years ago? That's really the question you want to you want answered when you ask, is this is this profession sustainable? And I, I don't honestly know why they haven't released those figures. Um, some people draw an adverse inference. Uh, there's a variety reporter who's very skeptical of the Writers Guild claims that uh, it's not a survivable profession. But the structural reasons that I outlined and the anecdotal evidence uh, do support the Writers Guild position. Now, the Writers Guild is focused not on residuals in these negotiations, but on initial compensation, the upfront money. They want minimum staffing levels for shows. They want um, a minimum duration of employment, and they want to increase the minimums. Why aren't they focusing on residuals per se? That's because the Directors Guild begins negotiations uh, tomorrow, and they will be focused on residuals. And assuming they get their deal done while the writers are still out on strike, that will set the pattern on residuals for um, the writers and also for the actors. Uh the issues there revolve around improving the existing formulas to take account of international subscribers and also adding an overlay uh, such that shows that are successful uh, would get additional residuals. There is no success metric. So Wednesday, uh, you know, very successful show on Netflix pays the exact same residuals, no, no better than a hypothetical show called Tuesday on Netflix that no one's ever heard of because it, because it never ran, but uh Let's suppose it was a flop. And that's, uh, you know, that ain't right, as they say. Uh, the the prior residuals formulas, uh, you know, for network and for cable and so forth, implicitly had a success metric because if the show was successful, it would go into the subsequent markets that uh, I believe John Terry described uh, earlier. Well, John Terry, the streaming model has also changed how television is written, leading to the rise of these so-called mini rooms, and you've worked in mini rooms for shows on streaming services. How does a mini room work? Um, a mini room is is different because it happens pre-green light. Like that's pre-knowing uh, that it's going to air on TV. And oftentimes it's a smaller amount of, of writers getting paid less. Um, and then if the show does eventually air, you may not even be one of the writers um, that's able to to join the the normal writer's room. Um, and so already in a mini room, what will happen is prior to production, uh, the writers will uh, break the season, meaning uh, like we'll decide what is going to happen in every episode for the season, sometimes even writing the scripts prior. Um, and then once the show gets greenlit um, and they hire a writer's room, then they'll they'll carry that out and produce those scripts. So what does that mean for how writers are compensated on these shows? Um, many rooms, compensation is different. Uh, it's less. Uh, we get paid less. Um, and also, if you don't get hired into the writer's room for that show, you're not going to be able to share in the residuals and the profits made from that show. Chris, in some cases, I'm, I'm thinking about the HBO show White Lotus. Uh, Mike White was the sole writer for that entire series. And the Writers Guild, one of the requests you're making is a staffing mandate that would require a writer's room of at least six to 12 writers for most shows. Why should networks and streaming companies be required to hire a certain number of writers for a project? 
Writers are important all the way through the process of making a television show, not just in writing the scripts, but in supervising and making adjustments throughout production and post-production. We um, did a survey of the last year that we had data for, and of the 500 scripted shows, only 10 were written by sole writer-creators like Mike White. We love Mike White. I love White Lotus. It's a great show. But that's a very atypical show, and the companies are being disingenuous when they say that somehow our proposal is going to hurt people like that. In fact, our co-chairs talked to all 10 of those writers who were sole creators, and they all support this proposal because it's going to protect the writer's room that has been so successful in creating television over many, many years because it became very clear to us during negotiations that the company's long-term goal is to not have writer's rooms anymore, is to gradually phase them out, to have a show creator and showrunner, and then maybe farm out some scripts during the year to freelance writers, kind of gig work, instead of having the ongoing part of the system called the writer's room that's been so successful. Uh, Jonathan, how could this writer requirement become the biggest sticking point in the labor negotiations? Well, because it's uh, it's one that uh, where it's hard to see how you uh, split the baby. Although the uh, the the statistic that Chris uh, just uh, just mentioned is actually a very interesting one and suggests that a compromise would be that there would be minimum staffing levels, not not at the level the Writers Guild is asking for. I mean, they want eight writers on a ten episode series. That's absurd. But but uh, as a minimum, but you of course you always ask for more than you expect to get. But it 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 might make sense for there to be, uh, you know, some sort of a minimum um, with a provision that in the case of someone, you know, that waivers will be granted under under circumstances where someone does want to write all the scripts themselves or, or just wants, you know, one or two other writers. Um, so so that that might be a pathway to a, to a compromise on that. Um, Chris alluded to duration of employment and the um, the issue there is when these room when these writers rooms close before production and and not all of them in my understanding are pre green light but uh, you know uh, but some of them nonetheless uh, the show's been may have been greenlit but you've got the writer room and then it closes before production and the writers are dismissed what's the problem with that well the 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 other the other model has the writers involved in production and post production so when the actor says to the director this scene isn't working. We need an emergency rewrite. The writer gets experience doing uh, a production rewrite in, you know, in an hour and a half. I mean, on tight deadline. Uh, they also get involved in the editing process. The editor says, "Let's cut that line," or "Let's let's let's uh, downplay it and do a reaction shot." And the writer says, "No, no, 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 no. Uh, that line is going to pay off two seasons later. That's a very important line to be right there. I'm the guardian of the story. If writers don't get that." Young writers don't get those kinds of experiences of working with cast, crew, and directors. Uh, it makes it harder for them to move up the career ladder because writers up the career ladder become writer producers and they want to become showrunners of their own script. But without that sort of experience, uh, they're they are potentially ill-equipped to do that. So it's not just a money issue; it's a career progression issue. Well, let's go to another issue that came up when we asked our audience about the strike. I had a story this morning on the writer's strike, followed by a story on artificial intelligence. With the advent of AI, every single one of them writers can be replaced today with the push of a button. It seems to me that writers may well be displaced by artificial intelligence 
in the not-too-distant future. Now, I don't know if they thought it through when they went on strike, but that is the reality of the world we live in today. Do you think writers are aware of that and that may be part of their strike? Now, the AMPTP, again, declined to appear on the show today, but provided this statement. Writers want to be able to use this technology as part of their creative process without changing how credits are determined, which is complicated given AI material can't be copyrighted. So it's something that requires a lot more discussion. It's important to note that the current WGA agreement already defines a writer to exclude any corporate or impersonal purveyor of literary material. AI-generated material would not be eligible for writing credit. Chris, what protections are writers looking for when it comes to artificial intelligence? We recognize that artificial intelligence may be a tool that's useful not just to writers, but to companies and to other people who work in the entertainment industry. All we've proposed is that work that's generated by artificial intelligence cannot become literary material that replaces the work of writers. It cannot write or rewrite our scripts And it can't become source material like novels or short stories that then we would be hired to punch up or rewrite. We're saying that that work needs to be done by humans. And we don't really understand what the objection to that is. We feel like our proposal is fair and it it doesn't prevent AI from being used as a tool and that the only reason that they would be opposed to our proposal is if they do in fact have plans to someday in the future have AI write scripts in the place of writers. We got this email from Gretchen in Virginia who says the writer's strike eventually will be self-defeating and it will merely confirm, one, that entertainment formats are changing, and two, that as a result, fewer writers are needed in the streaming area. Perhaps this is sad, but it's kind of like the decreased need for buggy whip makers at the dawn of the automotive age. Chris, I know we have to let you go, but very briefly, how do you respond to Gretchen's comment there? Well, I don't think that's a very good comparison. I think writers are essential to the most valuable product in film and television, feature films and scripted series. They're very profitable for the companies and have been for decades. And you really can't make them without good writing. So we are not terribly concerned about that part of it. We are concerned about the companies underpaying us and trying to replace us with AI. And we are, we're, this guild is more united than they've ever been in the 27 years I've been a member. So I feel very strongly that we're going to win this one. That's Chris Kyle. He's a screenwriter and the secretary treasurer for the Writers Guild of America East. Chris, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me on. Coming up, we explore the effect of the writer's strike on the larger economy and try to figure out how long the strike could go. Stay with us. Plenty more still ahead. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way, Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. 
Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Now let's get back to our discussion about the Writers Guild of America strike now in its second week. And let's bring one more voice into the conversation. Paul Hardart is a professor at NYU's Business School and the director of the Entertainment, Media, and Technology Program. Paul, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Let's go back to our inbox. Another member of our text club shared this. I'm not tuning in at all uh, for my late night uh, fix to watch Stephen Colbert and uh, those shows that I love. But hopefully these uh, people that control the purse strings will realize that a lot of people are not looking at the commercials that come on <laughs> these shows anymore. And maybe that will nudge them to cut the writers a break. I mean, everybody's so greedy anymore. Share it with the writers. Thanks. That's to Marilyn in Maryland. We also heard from Parker, who emailed us, I work in the set decoration department for TV and film as a union member. I'm also a union actor. As an actor, I receive residual checks. In the feast and famine world of our business, I have often wondered, how am I going to pay my mortgage? Then in the mailbox, I find a residual check. Residuals are important. Writers are important. We also heard from Tom, who emailed us, most union scripted TV productions have shut down in Atlanta because of the writer's strike. Everyone behind the camera who worked on those projects are looking for work in other areas of film. I live in North Carolina and film crew professionals from Atlanta are coming to our market to work on commercials and other types of video content, depriving our local workforce of income. Paul, Disney, Netflix, and Paramount have all cut hundreds of jobs from their streaming divisions over the last year. Uh, Warner Brothers Discovery made cuts late last year, but CEO David Zasloff remains positive about their future. Here's more from that interview on CNBC last Friday. We think streaming is going to be very profitable for us. We are unique. We have a lot of scale. We, we have the largest TV and motion picture library. And we have HBO, some of the greatest creatives, and we have all of our discovery content. So for us, we think it's going to be, it will be very profitable. We've said we'll make over a billion in 25. Um, and so right now we're significantly ahead of where we thought we would be. Having said that, the industry is in the middle of some of this significant disruption. And people are changing the way they consume content. Paul, what are the financial headwinds facing these companies that's causing tension in the union negotiations? Well, fundamentally, it's very expensive to launch these streaming services, and they're uncertain. So all these companies are taking a risk on the future. They're betting on that they're going to have a large subscriber base in the future. And they're moving from analog channels like we're all used to, whether it's cable or network. And so they're they're making huge investments in an uncertain future, and that's inherently risky. So I think that's their claim. But there you have David Zaslow saying they plan to make over a billion dollars from uh, Max and that, you know, in the future it will be profitable. The other big change is they're going from what used to be, they didn't have a direct relationship with their consumers, and this is they're moving into a direct relationship so they'll understand their consumers in a way they never have before. Well, we're also talking about relationships within relationships. You've got the networks, and then you've got, the streaming companies, how is that complicating the negotiations? Great, great question. Because this is what, you know, in sort of the realm of business school, you'd call the innovator's dilemma, right? Moving, you know, sort of cable has been an amazing business for, for decades. And now you moving, that's people are cutting the cord. They're moving away from that. And as you point out, a lot of these businesses have different business models. Amazon 
and Apple have a different business model than Netflix. Peacock and Paramount have a different uh, model. So they're all very different. So the unified front of the members, the signatories, is, is you know, they all have different agendas and different business models, which, which makes it a little complicated on their end. What are some of the key differences between the streaming financial model and the traditional advertising on network programs? Well, the traditional advertising on network is if a show does well, you keep investing in that show when it can go on for seasons and seasons because there's a loyal audience. In the streaming world, it is what they call ARPU. That's the metric they generally use, which is average revenue per user. And really all they want, almost like a credit card business, is you want people to sign up and stay and be loyal. And that's kind of, so it's a different model and harder. And this is where the challenge for the writers is, is that the interests may not be as aligned as they used to be, is they're just trying to get subscribers to come and stay. And it may not be connected as much to how the show performs. Well, the 2007 to 2008 writer strike cost the California economy an estimated $2 billion. That's according to the Milken Institute, an independent think tank. Jonathan, how does the Hollywood writers strike this time around? How, what kind of ripple effects do you think it could have on the greater California economy? Well, if you adjust that figure for inflation, which was $200 million a day times the 100-day strike, uh, you're looking at uh, a, around a quarter of a billion dollars a day. $250 million a day or so. Uh, and the, the way the ripple effect works is this, um, with writers and crew members and actors out of work with production slowing uh, and writers on strike, uh, they file for unemployment first, and then they cut their discretionary spending. So that means restaurant meals that they don't buy. It means, uh, you know, uh, clothing. It means this. It means that. And, you know, then the restaurant uh, with reduced business uh, lays off workers. The suppliers to the entertainment industry, the caterers, the prop houses, et cetera, they lay off or furlough workers. And then those workers file for unemployment and cut their discretionary spending. And so it is a ripple effect through the economy that can be very damaging. Many more black writers and other writers of color on the picket line compared to 15 years ago. That's according to the Writers Guild West Inclusion and Equity Report. Just 13% of writers identified as people of color in 2010. That's compared to 37% in 2020. John Terry, what concerns do you have about the effect of the strike, specifically on writers of color? Yeah, as a black woman writer, um, I'm definitely concerned for us, and I and I have experienced the fact that most of us are in the lower level um, of uh, of writers, and and that's what uh, we're actually fighting for this time. A lot of, when we talk about making the the uh, the middle class and securing the middle class and making a sustainable career, a lot of those people um, like me are lower level writers and people of color, um, and so like to have the entire to have like 98% of the members authorizing this strike fighting for us it's it's huge talk about your experience working your way up through the ranks oh yeah it's actually been it's been difficult one uh, being a staff writer and asking being asked to repeat that level three times that's the lowest level of writer and the problem with being a staff writer is that we don't receive script fees so for a half hour comedy that's about twenty eight thousand um, dollars that I'm not getting for writing the same script that that other people are writing so that's one way that um, that uh, it's been harder another is like I mentioned about repeating the levels I've been writing uh, I've been a, a TV writer. 
um, staffed for four years. I've only been promoted once. Um, and the reason I, I, I think is because the biggest bump in weekly pay is between staff writer and story editor. And you have to fight to get that. It's not that I wasn't negotiating for it. I just wasn't being given it. So now I have nine, 10 rooms um, worth of experience behind me and I've only been promoted once. I'm still at the bottom of the rung. That's a problem. We heard from Nicole, who emailed us, I will have an incoming freshman who will be majoring in film and media at one of the UC schools. She wants to be successful in the field of screenwriting. It's my hope that during this strike, something comes of it and there is change. People need a living wage. I'm worried for my kid and what her future holds. Paul, you're teaching the next generation of content creators and media managers as part of your program at NYU. How are you advising them to think about the current landscape for television writers and studio runners if this strike continues? That's great. And, and again, you know, sort of John Terry made a good point there. Is it hard to find that career? And, and entertainment has always been hard to sort of find your way in. Once you're in, like John Terry's in a much better position than a lot of people trying to get in, but it's still hard once you're in. And with the strike, we're seeing that there are, you know, lots of headwinds in terms of how things are going to be in the future. But generally speaking, I think you have to just sort of bet on yourself and believe that if you can tell an amazing story, the world is going to want to see that. It's just harder and harder to cut through because we have so many different options of ways to get content today. So it's a challenge. We heard from Martin in Tennessee who asks, if the strike cannot be immediately resolved, what options do studios have? Would they be able to use the services of strike breakers? Uh, Jonathan, what can you tell us? No, um, you know, everyone thinks that they can write and it's not as easy as it looks. Um, and uh, strike bre- strike breakers in the sense of, uh, of you know, of people domestically that, oh, well, we'll just hire some non-writers, writers. No, that's, that's not going to happen. But but in a certain sense, it happens in that uh, some of the companies, particularly Netflix, has pioneered overseas production and accomplished something that no one thought would be possible, which is to get Americans to watch uh, foreign shows, you know, Squid Game, Berlin Babylon, and so forth. And so, you know, in a in a certain sense, that's that's what's going on. You've got international competition. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, you have a strike that's grinding on and you, you, we talked about the difference in business models. Uh, this strike is going to last at least eight weeks so that the studios can terminate so-called overall deals uh, with trigger, trigger clauses called force majeure. Some people may have heard of uh, these overall deals are, in some cases, multi-hundred million dollar deals that were made in an era of easy money. That When that happened, when this delay, this, delay, this eight weeks and more, um, means that we're going to get into destruction of the fall television season and the streamers are happy to see that, the, net, the traditional companies are not. Mike from Indianapolis writes, regarding AI replacing writers, have you ever read an AI script? They are filled with the most tired, contrived plots, hollow tropes, stilted dialogue, and weak character development, which might be fine for your average billion-dollar blockbuster, but for films and shows of quality that doesn't begin to be close to good enough. Uh, and we also heard from another of you in our text club who says, I'm curious to see what happens to the art of film. I don't want AI films. They'll just be rehashed derivatives of the existing white male controlled canon. I want new voices from different perspectives told with different voices with unfamiliar accents. John Terry, you worked on a show that used AI. Can you just briefly explain how it worked? Oh, let me uh, clarify that. I haven't worked on a show that used AI. Writers, we don't want to use AI. Uh, what I did, what I 
what I was familiar with as far as AI is I used to write comedy, uh, like jokes on this this site called Comedy Wire that then started doing like marketing. And they started using AI to like come up with the ideas and then have writers edit that, right? Which is what I see like uh, a possibility of the future that they're going towards, uh, that the AMPTP is going towards if we don't get what we want in these negotiations regarding AI, that writers would be, uh, I, I agree with that viewer. Um, AI doesn't have the specificity. It doesn't have, like, when we come up with these storylines, it's rooms of writers pouring out our hearts, pouring out our, our personal experiences and our traumas in order to make a human connection. And that's something that AI can't do. Uh, so we're, we're not interested in involving AI in our process. Let's go back to our voicemail box. Yeah, since I don't watch uh, network television or late night shows, I really don't care about the writer's strike. Perhaps I'm being mean-spirited here, but I don't care about the writer's strike. For me, what they produce is a waste of time. So I see the writers and what they produce as part of the problem in our society, and I don't support their strike. We received several messages from our text club and in our voicemail with a similar theme. People who are either disinterested in the writer's strike or questioning why writers want more money. Very briefly, John Terry, what's the case you make to those people? I, I think it's not just a writer issue, it's a labor issue. And we're supported by every major Hollywood union and community leaders in the L.A. area because it's not just we're not the only ones struggling under the current industry business model. And these same things, uh, making less, working for free, uh, making money and not getting a fair amount of the profits on your work. That is that's a bigger issue than just the writers have. That's across labor. Well, with AI, writers' rooms, and and pay all up for debate, Paul, very briefly, the results of these contract negotiations could fundamentally change the entertainment industry. What do you think this means for the future of film and television? Well, I mean, it it has already fundamentally changed. And I think one of the challenges, one of the concerns for me is the, as sort of uh, Jonathan pointed out, the knock-on effect of people's consumers changing their habits, whether it's the gentleman earlier who loved to watch Stephen Colbert uh, you know, late night ratings have gone down. So the longer those shows aren't available, people come up with other ways to entertain themselves. So I think, you know, the impact, the unintended in- consequences of having uh, shows go dark for a period uh, would be a concern of mine. Jonathan, I'll give you the last word. Uh, this is going to be a very difficult uh, fight. It is about the concentration of power and wealth uh, at the top of the uh, pyramid and labor wanting a fair share. That's Jonathan Handel. He's an entertainment attorney and contributing writer for Puck News. He's covering the writer strike. Also with us today, Paul Hardert, a professor at NYU's business school and the director of the Entertainment, Media and Technology Program, and John Terry Gadsden, a comedy writer and strike master with the Writers Guild of America West. Jonathan, Paul, John Terry, thanks for your time. Today's producer was Chris Remington. Our thanks to KMUW in Wichita, Kansas, their partners in our ongoing series, Remaking America. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. 
Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. (laughs) Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.